Good morning, Christ Church. We are just ecstatic that this is the beginning of that season that we call spring, that we start to get out. And um, I don't know how many of you are sore from yesterday because many of you probably were doing some raking or yard cleanup. But I think that's why I love Palm Sunday. Now, just a note, if you are here in the building, which is really great to see um, all of you here this morning, uh, you can leave today. When you leave, you can go downstairs and you'll get a palm. But for those of you who could not make it to the service, to the actual building this morning, we will have palms in a vase outside of our entry door downstairs, and you can pick them up throughout today and tomorrow for as long as they last. So you still can sort of experience or get that palm if that's something that you're used to. Well, you know, when I was a kid, Palm Sunday was a really big deal in my church. Um, As a church, we had this tradition of walking around the neighborhood and singing songs with the words Hosanna anywhere in the lyrics. We'd assemble in the church and we would... uh, get ready, and we'd turn around and we'd walk out. And as you walked out, you grabbed a palm frond and you began to walk and march and sing. And we walked around this like sort of big square around a block. Now, um, what would happen as people were processing is that there would be this gap that would begin to appear because when 200 people are walking and marching and singing, not everybody does it at the same pace. So around the halfway mark, you'd start to really notice a bigger gap. The people in the front were singing in a certain way or at a certain point, and the people in the back were sort of lagging behind. And the funny thing is, is by the time we got back into the church, the back would be a full verse behind the front of the church. And it would be great when I was a kid to see who would gonna, gonna acquiesce to, uh, to where we're gonna get together. Is it the front? They'll just, they'll just sort of stop singing and sing with the back or the back, will they just catch up? But reflecting back, I think the gap was created intentionally. I mean, think about this. If you get to go to church and you get to walk around waving a palm branch and singing and marching and you sort of drag that out, it just meant less time sitting through a sermon in church. So whether intentional or not, we make gaps. We try to put distance between something that might make us feel unsafe or unsecure or might feel like it's threatening us or something we just don't want to do. Um, We've gotten really good at the six-foot gap, right? And that's our sermon title today, The Gaps We Make. And it comes from the gaps we make between God's glory and grace and what we call glory and grace. So would you stand with me as I read uh, the encounter that Jesus has at Palm Sunday? And it's a little bit long, so I do want you to pay attention to it. But there's this movement that we have to sort of understand as we begin with Jesus' descent into Jerusalem and into the temple. This is from Matthew 21, 1 through 17. When they had come near Jerusalem and reached Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go into the village ahead of you and immediately you will find a donkey tied with a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone says to you, just say this, the Lord needs them and he will send them immediately. 
This took place to fulfill what had been spoken through the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, look, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, and they put their cloaks on them, and and they sat on them. The very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them across the road. Now the crowds that went ahead of them and followed were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in heaven's highest. Now when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was in turmoil, asking, who is this? The crowds were saying, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. Then Jesus entered the temple and he drove out all who were selling and buying in the temple and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he cured them. When the chief priests and the scribes saw the amazing things he did and heard the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they became angry and they said to him, do you hear what they are saying? And Jesus said, yes. I Have you not read? Out of the mouths of infants and nursing babes, you have prepared praise for yourself. He left them and went out of the city to Bethany and he spent the night there. Father, as we come to you this morning, knowing that um, there are gaps in our understanding, there are gaps in the way that we have approached you and we approach others. There are gaps in the way that even just that we want to put between our week uh, that has gone by and maybe what's coming to us in the future. We like gaps because they push the stuff that we feel uncomfortable with away. We want gaps between hurt and pain and our sense of safety and security. But Father, today we want to live into this journey that Jesus made to see and expose our gaps and see how you are working within them to close them. So we give you this time. In your name, Jesus, amen. Would you please be seated? In 2016, I got this chance to travel to Israel um, and do the same walk that Jesus did. Uh, We actually went out to Bethany and we got to go visit Lazarus's tomb. And Lazarus's tomb is just sort of like, it just says there's a little teeny sign that you walk by and it says Lazarus's tomb. And you get to go down these steep sort of stairs and get into this hollowed out basement. You know, it's like a basin. It's all enclosed with rock. And then our guide would yell, come out of the grave, and he'd walk back up, you know, and have that same sort of experience. Well, on our return back to Jerusalem, there's this point that you're getting, and and, and it's sort of constantly uphill because you're going on the other side of the Mount of Olives, and you get to this point, and it's in that point that you get to see all of Jerusalem in front of you. You get to see the old city of David, what is left of the Temple Mount, and you get to see even further beyond. It's the most breathtaking scene. And the funny thing is, is that you're about at the same distance or equal like height-wise as the Temple Mount. And it's only about a, half a, mi- a mile and a half away. 
but you still have to descend the Mount of Olives and cross the Kidron Valley and come back up. And when you get to that gate, the Jaffa Gate, right as you go into the city, you begin to experience this energy. It's busy, it's loud, it's chaotic. It, it feels like somehow something here is happening and you're not quite sure what it is. Um, as a Christian, you, you sort of feel like maybe this is really holy ground. I really don't think it was much different for Jesus on his journey and the thousands of travelers that were coming from the surrounding areas to Jerusalem during the Passover festival. But on their descent, what they would have seen was the splendor of Herod's temple. It said it was covered in white stone and it would have been gleaming. And it had these 40 foot walls that surrounded the whole place and it had these Roman garrisons stationed on different sides. There were, they would have been hearing mark, the marketplaces full of animals, the bleeding and the cooing and all that sort of stuff. They would have heard the sound of money exchanging. They would have heard thousands and thousands of people cramming into a city, trying to find a location for them to stay and for their provisions. And I believe they too were sensing this energy, hoping for this encounter with God. But for Jesus, the journey was about filling their gaps, sort of their gaps in the way they were approaching this festival and the way that they were approaching Jerusalem and the temple. Now, we have to do some uh, backpedaling here in order to give us some background, but Way, way back when Moses was leading the Israelites out of uh, Egypt, um, they had a certain understanding of the way gods sort of functioned. And they believed that gods were very territorial, that uh, the gods of Egypt, if, if, if a god was active you know, in Egypt, if what they believed was a god was active in Egypt, it stayed over a Nile or it stayed within fertility or it stayed over the crops. It was very territorial. So um, when Moses builds the temple, the, the tabernacle in the wilderness for the whole um, tribe of Israel um, and says, you know, God's presence is going to come, they were very relieved when God showed up. In Exodus 40, it says, then the cloud covered the tabernacle and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle for the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day and a fire was in the cloud by night before the eyes of all the house of Israel at each stage of their journey. Later on, uh, when King David's son Solomon built a temple in Jerusalem, now they could say God's presence was permanently dwelling. Second Chronicles says, now when Solomon finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices and the glory of the Lord filled the house. Now, both times, God's presence came in with this rushing uh, sense of glory, of power, uh, with signs and wonders. Now, we have to fast forward back up to Jesus's day, and Herod had spent 46 years building this magnificent temple and restoring the whole area that had been rebuilt, uh, destroyed and rebuilt after the Babylonian exile. Now, after it had been rebuilt, there's this 400-year gap 
uh, between the rebuilt temple and Herod's temple. But God's presence hadn't returned. No fire, no thunder and lightning, no glory filling the place, nothing. But the scriptures were still ringing in their heads. Psalm reminds us, lift up your heads, O gates. Be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates. Be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. For them, God's glory was supposed to be demonstrated with this power. Now, maybe they didn't assume it was going to be thunder and lightning again, but certainly God's presence should return with signs and wonders and this sense of majesty and power. But they had made this gap between how they understood God's glory and what they mistook for glory. Funny enough, um, the city was in turmoil. That The word there uh, is seismic. They were having this seismic shift as the news about Jesus came in with this parade. As the, uh, you know, the crowds poured in yelling, Hosanna, Hosanna, and exclaiming all that Jesus had done. Remember, feeding of the 5,000, you know, um, giving sight to the blind, calling the lame to walk, healing the leopards, all those signs and wonders, they held on to this gap. The, the, the city held on to this gap between the God that fills a temple and the son of David who was walking among them. And it's because God's glory had these overtones of political sort of intrigue and power and this religious system and the political systems were all sort of mushed up with God's glory. God's glory equaled power and victory over Rome. And God's glory would usher in a new kingdom that they could control and that they could rule from. But Jesus didn't stop there. He continued to march and then he entered the temple. Now he entered specifically the court of the Gentiles, which is the outermost court of the temple area. Now, way back, God had told the prophet Isaiah about this court that I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than the sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name, the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord. These I will bring into my holy mountain and I will make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. This was supposed to be the court of the Gentiles. Now the court of the Gentiles were about foreigners, others from other nations who wanted to get close uh, to God in some ways that believed God was the way of salvation and would bring sacrifices and offerings. But it was also for those Jews who were less worthy in a way, like who were disfigured or lame or blind, the eunuch. Even some children were kept in the court of the Gentiles, sort of in proximity to the temple, but 
behind this, in this area. Because the inner court of the temple was reserved for first the women, the Jewish women, then the Jewish men, and then the priests. And as you moved closer and farther up sort of the ranks, you would move closer to the temple, the middle part of the temple, which is the holy place, which is where God dwelled. But instead of a place for prayer, for those who could not come that close to the temple, Jesus said, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. Now, unfortunately, most of our translations translate the Greek word here, lestes, as robber or thief. But I actually think there's another translation that sometimes get missed that actually can help correct the way we think about this. Another translation for lestes is the word bandit or insurrectionist. Now, was Jesus commenting on the marketplaces? Um, maybe. I mean, marketplaces were part of the whole system, right? As you descended the Mount of Olives, there was a marketplace where you could buy your sacrificial animal. Because if you're traveling a long distance, I mean, miles and miles and miles, most likely an unblemished blemished animal would end up blemished, would end up hurt and not worthy of a sacrifice. So it was a convenience. It was like a 7-Eleven convenience marketplace. You know, you didn't have to bring all that. You could just buy it right outside of the city and bring um, an offering into the temple. Did they charge more? Possibly. Were there people who were cheating others? Probably. But Jesus wasn't really talking about that. The marketplace that he's talking about was set up within the court of the Gentiles. If you crowd out a court with a marketplace, how many people can you fit in that actually want to be there? Not that many. But in this particular marketplace, the rulers and the religious elite had created a gap, a gap between God and those less worthy, in their opinion. And instead of welcoming the Gentile or the blind or the lame or the sick, they instead welcomed lefties, rebels, bandits, terrorists, who were working with them to plot and scheme against the Roman rule that they were feeling. Those who would bring Jerusalem and the temple back under the religious elite's control. People like Barabbas, he was a lestes, who had probably been arrested just weeks before this for terrorist activity against Rome. But the religious elite, the priests, the rulers, they welcomed lestes instead of welcoming the nations. But they had made this gap between the nations and God's blessing and grace. They had forgotten God's grace was always intended to reach all of the nations to reach beyond their borders. They had forgotten that numbers passage that we have been studying for the last three weeks. The Lord will protect and keep you. The Lord will make himself known to you. The Lord will show favor to you and bring you peace. That was meant to bless the nation so that they could bless the world. But they had created this gap, this gap that separated the nations from God. And they had defined grace with a sacrificial and religious system. They had defined grace as doing the right thing or following the law to a T. 
Their gap was meant to exclude, not include. Now, I told you that this sermon is about the gaps that we make. And um, I honestly think we today still make similar gaps in the way we understand God's glory and God's grace. I think we make a glory gap and put God in a temple of our own making. I think we mistake activity, frenzy, passion, chaos, passion, all that sort of stuff that goes into our good feelings around something. And it could be around church. It could be around a specific ministry. It could even be in your C group or your Bible study. It could happen in your family or, the, or the, what you do for work. And, and you mistake it for God's glory. Because for some reason along the way, you define God's glory as this feeling and you hold on to that place where you first experienced God. Now, I know I'm stepping on a, little to- a couple toes here, but maybe for you, you experienced God in a certain style of music or singing. And that's how God, you experience God and you want to hold on to that because it makes you feel like God is present. Maybe there was a prayer meeting that you attended and you just knew God spoke and you experienced God in that, that, in that moment. So you want to hold on to prayer meetings. Maybe it was a certain ministry or a Bible study or a class that helped you experience God. So you say, Everybody needs to do this exact same thing in order to experience God's glory. Are these things bad? No, not at all. Of course, we want to hold on to that which first helped us experience God. Of course we do. But when we hold on to it too tight, too tightly, we sort of create a box. We create a temple that we can stick God in. We actually define our own temple, our own box, and say God's glory belongs in there. That's where we have God's glory. That's how you access it. And we hold on to it and we say, this is what God's glory looks like. But I think we also press into the opposite of uh, this glory gap. I think we put God in these boxes to make us feel safe. Now, can you imagine if God's presence today looked like thunder and lightning and fire and a cloud? Can you imagine if it came with signs and wonders and if it taught taught us and transformed us and comforted us? Egad, we'd run away. So we keep our Bibles shut. We keep them in a box because God's word, if it remains in our house, isn't that good enough? I mean, God's word in a Bible stuck on a shelf is sort of in proximity. We're we're sort of in proximity to God, but we've allowed him, we just keep him in this box because when you open it, what are you going to experience? Thunder, lightning, God's transformation power, miracles, signs, and wonders. Of course you are. Now, we also do this in some ways because we also sort of avoid church We actually pretend that God is territorial and that God is right in this building only. So we show up once every couple of weeks. 
And we, we call everything else that we do, like walking in nature or being with our, our family, as spiritual because we want to keep God in that box over there and we visit him when we can. I think we make this intentional gap so that God's presence doesn't overwhelm us, doesn't change us, doesn't push us into making a choice for God. I, I think sometimes we do this on, pers- pur- on purpose because God's presence does change us. It does compel us. It, it does move us. And God's glory, when we experience it, really shakes your world. So I think we make a glory gap, but I also think we make a gap involving grace as well. I am super guilty of this. Um, When things don't go my way, who do you think I blame? My husband and God, (laughs) right? I actually think that it, it like, and I don't have grace for others when they mess up and they have, and they make mistakes. I, I just assume that how do they not get it, right? But when I do that, when I rush towards somebody or I blame them for something or I blame God for something, I think you, you just made this mistake and it, it's your fault. But then I think, you know, I also assume that God's grace may not be extended to me because I know I mess up. I know I make mistakes. And, and sometimes when I'm sick or I, I'm in need of healing, I actually think, you know what? I probably haven't done enough for God to heal me. I probably haven't done enough or been good enough for God's grace to extend, be extended towards me. I've done everything I could, but maybe I've fallen short. And so I, I assume that grace is something I need to work for to achieve, that I have to somehow close the gap between me and God so that he pays attention and he does something for me. Does this resonate with any of you? Any of you out there have gaps in the way you think about grace? Have you been creating roadblocks or obstacles in your life because you haven't measured up or you think you don't measure up, so you've put that sort of between you and God? Are you guilty of pre-qualifying someone based on their behavior, pre-qualifying someone or yourself, whether or not they're worthy to move from the court of the Gentiles into God's presence? Have you terrorized others because you are so busy getting, trying to get your own way or, or maintain control or, or dig into your big issue that you've terrorized others and you've actually pushed them away from God? Are you guilty of this either or living? Either I am perfect and God will accept me or I am such a horrible sinner that God won't even look at me. Have you made a glory gap or a grace gap? Are you in these places? Well, this morning, I really want to focus on the fact that there's good news. We actually don't need these gaps anymore. 
I want you to hear that we don't need these gaps anymore. Do we push into them? Do we create them? Do we hold on to them? Of course we do, but we don't need them anymore because Jesus closed all of these gaps. We don't need to keep God in a box. We don't need to be afraid of him, his, you know, his power, his majesty, his glory. And we don't keep, need to keep ourselves or others away from God. Now, I read that whole passage because I want you to see how Jesus closed the gap right in front of them. After Jesus drove out the buyers and the sellers and the tradesmen and the high priest and the priest, the ruling class, the lesties, after he drove them all out of this court, it says this, the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he cured them. The blind and the lame, the Gentile, those who are outside in this court, who had been crowded out, who had not been allowed to be part of what was happening in the temple, whose view of God was obscured by this huge marketplace with all this political intrigue happening. The blind, the lame, those outside could come to him in the temple, and he cured them. They weren't even in that court, and yet when he cleared it, they all came to him. And then you could hear children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David. Jesus had closed the glory gap. When Jesus walked into that temple, literally God's presence showed back up. It dwelled in that whole area. But it wasn't about a location. It wasn't about containing God in that location. It was about what God was going to recreate, his plan to reintroduce what he was doing in the world, recreate the idea of God's presence because Jesus would send us his Holy Spirit. Jesus shows in that moment that heaven meets earth wherever his spirit is working. In us, through us, around us, in, in the other, we are God's glory. So this morning, do you want his presence with you? Do you want to move from the outside towards him? Do you want God to come to you. All you have to do is ask. Confess Jesus as your Lord this morning and ask him to send you his Holy Spirit to dwell in you always, and he will. He's here now. Jesus also closed the grace gap. This week, Pastor Van has created a devotional for Holy Week so that we can actually walk through what it took for God to close that grace gap in Jesus, for us to understand the grace that came through his death and his resurrection. Now, on Friday, we're going to be setting up a station downstairs. Uh, we call it the koi pond because it used to be a fish, fish pond. But right next to the entry door, we're going to set up a station of a cross that you can come to at any time during Good Friday. From dawn till dusk, it will be there for you to sort of meditate on the cross, to spend time sort of working through the station on your own terms. Anybody can come at any time. 
It will be outside ready and waiting for you. There's also going to be a service at 12 o'clock on Friday and seven o'clock on Friday that will lead you through uh, sort of the stations of the cross to be engaging with Jesus's death um, on Good Friday. So you're welcome to come to that. But they're all a reminder to remind us to say that Jesus is that sacrificial lamb. He took the place of what they were doing for Passover. He took the place of us and died on a cross so that we have access to God's grace. Jesus is God's grace. We are also baptizing on Easter. And so if you have been hanging out, we would say on the court of the Gentiles, you've been hanging out at that rim of faith. Maybe you haven't felt worthy. Maybe you haven't, you think that there's a bunch of things wrong. And so you've like, I'll hang around God. But to actually come to God, you haven't done that. If you did that today, if you want to do that today, I just implore you, go back and just ask. Jesus, come to me. Close the gap. Send your Holy Spirit to dwell in me. He's already closed the gap. He's done the work for us. And so if that is you, we'd love to hear about it and we'd love to see you baptized. So let us know that week as well. God is here now. Joy is rising. Hope is calling. Fear is fleeing. And the chains of sin are falling. God is always on his way to us. He is here now. Amen.